Hey everybody, this is your host, Michael Ojibwe. A very quick note, our feature podcast this week is Rusty Hinges. If you're like me, you love a good mystery, stay tuned after the show for a quick promo. You won't want to miss it. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. What would you do for love? Most claim they would do about anything, but a few are willing to lie, cheat, steal, or even kill. This time on Invisible Choir. Love is blind, or so they say, especially in the information age. With online dating and social media, it's easier than ever to connect with people anywhere in the world. Even for those of us who are a little socially awkward or introverted, the internet becomes a suit of armor and can give even the meekest among us an incredible confidence in how we present ourselves, because we have control over what we put out for the world to see. All that is positive and glowing shines for everyone while the negatives and the deepest, darkest secrets of our personalities, if you will, exist beneath the accessible surface. On the internet, you can create the belief that you are just about anyone you desire. Things like wealth or the appearance of success and social status that once required money now only require a cleverly posed photograph and a convincing story. But to bridge the gap between the online and real worlds through love requires truth. And the case we're examining today is no exception because when a so-called love is built upon the cracked foundations of money, addiction, and obsession, some are willing to blur the lines between the mundane and the criminal, and are willing to do anything to fulfill their desires, even if it means turning on those who we hold closest, our families. check the mail and I'm asking you if you can please pretty please send me one of your videos I just I, I love it so much when you just send them to me yeah I, I don't like buying your stuff it makes me feel weird could you please send me one though in an unincorporated area of southern Seminole County in Florida lies the town of Chuliota the name is said to mean land of lakes and pines or beautiful place. Whichever meaning you hear depends upon whom you ask in the area. It's a small town of just over 2,500 residents northeast of Orlando, giving those close by access to the city, nightlife, and other more touristy attractions. But Chuliota is also the kind of place where a person can become quite isolated very easily. On the morning of January 25, 2019 at around 9 a.m., the Seminole County Sheriff's Office received a call from an employee at the Orlando Regional Medical Center. The caller, Chris Sisko, stated that his co-worker and close friend, 31-year-old Cody Amato, had not shown up for work. Cody was the kind of employee who was always on time. 
He never missed a day of work without notice, and he was beloved by his fellow colleagues. Chris knew Cody's work ethic, as they had gone through the same anesthesia nursing program together, spent countless hours at the same clinical site, and eventually worked in the same level one trauma center at the ORMC. Um, from what I can recall, um, I never could recall a time when Cody um, would show up late to class, when he would not show up to class, when he would not um, come on time or not show up to clinical. I never heard of an instance where he, you know, just did not show up for any reason. Um, extremely dedicated, knowledgeable. Um, he worked hard um, at being the CRNA that he was. And we started working as CRNAs at ORMC. Um, it is our, uh, when you work a day shift and you know your schedule ahead of time, you are uh, scheduled um, to show up at uh, at least at the latest seven o'clock. Um, but you can show up earlier um, if you'd like. And so um, you can clock in at 6.45 and that's when you can start getting paid, but you're not considered late until you show up after seven. Cody and I um, and a couple others, we would show up even earlier than that, 6.15, 6.20, we would clock in um, knowing that we weren't gonna get paid, but we would, you know, come and get, get our rooms ready, go see our patients in pre-op, see them ahead of time, talk about the care plan with our anesthesiologist. So I would say that Cody was, again, never late, not even punctual. I would say he's always early. And so, um, again, never saw him show up late at all. When Chris was unable to reach Cody, there became a cause for concern. Seminole County Deputy Todd Motorson took the call and drove to the Amato family home at 2112 Salton Circle. Prior, prior to entering the house? Yes. Um, so some of the things that I uh, did to try to see if anybody um, would respond, uh, come to the door or whatnot, answer a phone, <clears throat> um, knocked on the door, of course, front and back doors, uh, I knocked on windows, pounded on, uh, actually physically pounded on the windows, called out um, the name of the person I was uh, trying to locate, which was uh, Cody Amato. Um, I tried calling his cell phone, his brother's grand cell phone, his mom's cell phone, his dad's cell phone, and uh, got no response from, from anybody. As Deputy Motorson continued searching around the outside of the home, he began to try various tactics in order to gain the attention of any inhabitants who may be inside, such as blowing an air horn that he had in his squad car. Unfortunately, he was unable to get any response whatsoever. After multiple verbal and physical attempts to contact anyone with inside the home, as well as using the air horn, Deputy Motorson began looking around the porch area of the home in an attempt to find a possible hidden or spare house key. Uh, <clears throat> so a lot of people leave a, a hidden key uh, around their home somewhere, a lot of times around the front door somewhere. So I, I checked there for a hidden key um, to uh, try to gain access to the home without causing damage to a door, such as kicking in a door, breaking a window, something like that. With no luck, Deputy Motorson requested permission from his supervisor to use physical force to gain entry to the Amato family home. So the uh, concern uh, rose to the level where I felt like we needed to gain access to the home to check on the well-being of uh, Cody. And so I contacted the supervisor, explained all the details of what my concern were, the totality of the circumstances, if you will, and requested to uh, enter the home. And were you given permission to do that? Um, the first request uh, was denied as far as the force entry. She wanted to uh, do a little more due diligence before we damaged somebody's property. And then after you did what you needed to do, 
were you granted permission to force entry into the home? Once I uh, found an access point where we didn't have to create damage, she said to go ahead in. Because of the unusual circumstances, Deputy Motorson's supervisor requested that he wait for backup before entering the home, as there could be a potentially dangerous situation awaiting inside for just a lone officer entering. After backup arrived, both Deputy Motorson and Deputy Brian Matre entered the home. So, uh, based on my 28 years of law enforcement experience, you sort of learn little tricks uh, that you can do to try to um, access homes. And one of the things that I know that is if a deadbolt isn't fully engaged, that you can sometimes use an instrument such as a knife to try to slide that deadbolt back. I tried it on the front, it didn't work, it was fully engaged. I tried it on the back door, as you're facing the home, it would be the back right of the home. And there was a back door that I was able to slide the deadbolt using my knife over, creating an access point to the home. Once inside, deputies Motorson and Matre found a grisly crime scene. The bodies of three individuals were located inside of the Amato family home. So the first one that we came to was uh, in a kitchen area. Uh, the second one was in a, what I'll describe to be sort of a storage um, slash workout room uh, off of uh, the garage. And the last one was in a, what I'll describe to be a sort of set up as, a, as an office area, home office area with a desk. Before tending to the crime scenes that were spread throughout the Amato family home, the deputies were tasked with clearing the property, looking for any other potential victims or threats that may still be within the vicinity. Originally, investigators believed they had found Cody, his younger brother, 29-year-old Grant, and their 61-year-old mother, Margaret. Cody was found with a gunshot wound directly under his eye, and just feet away from him on the ground was a handgun and his work bag. He was still dressed in his work scrubs. Their mother, Margaret, was found shot in the back of the head and was slumped over, still sitting at her computer desk. The male that was found in the kitchen, originally believed to be Grant, was actually Cody's father, 59-year-old Chad Amato. He was shot twice in the head and found wearing his handgun still holstered at his side. Grant was known to live inside of the family home, so it was unusual for him to be nowhere in sight. Investigators tried contacting him early on in the investigation, but his phone was disconnected. The Amato's eldest son, Jason, was the only one they were able to get in contact with. For him, the news of what had happened to the family was heartbreaking and devastating. All signs early on pointed to a tragic murder-suicide committed by one of his own brothers. It was pretty scary. Um, so they, you know, came into the building and the whole building got shut down and there were police officers everywhere. Uh, they took me into a room and, you know, questioned me and um, later gave me very general details that there was a woman and uh, two males in their 30s found in the house. Um, so I, uh, I just tried to answer. No, I'm good, I'm good. So I just tried to uh, answer their questions as best as possible and, um, uh, they questioned me for 
Well, I mean, I was with them all day, but they initially questioned me for a couple hours, and then they went and searched my car in the parking lot for a couple hours, and then they went and searched my house for a couple hours. So, you know, during that whole time, I was with the investigators all day, and they were constantly asking me questions, uh, just tendencies about my parents and brothers and stuff. The police asked questions that Jason didn't have the answers to, such as who exactly would want his mother, father, and brother dead. Jason informed the investigators that he wasn't exactly close with his family, that he, in fact, only saw them roughly three times a year, though he would speak to his mother on a near-weekly basis. As the only other missing family member, the hunt to find Grant Amato was on. On January 26th, just a day following the gruesome discovery at the Amato household, investigators received a tip that Grant was holed up at a local hotel. Police were advised that his white Honda Accord was parked outside of a double tree by Hilton and that he was a registered guest. After staging a scene with multiple officers, Grant was contacted by investigators in the hallway on the third floor of the hotel when he was briefly detained while investigators cleared his room. He agreed to go down voluntarily to the Seminole County Sheriff's Office to be questioned. Like I primarily worked in the hospital for, I think, five years, five or six years. And then I was pursuing a Master's of Science in Nurse Anesthesia. Mm-hmm. Um, that was back in 2015, I believe. Okay. Um, but then I didn't complete that, and then I just went back to nursing. The Amatos were the typical all-American type of family. Chad Mato believed that if you worked hard, kept out of trouble, and stayed persistent in your goals, that you would reap the rewards of success. The beloved husband and father worked hard and put his nose to the books and became a pharmacist, eventually going on to lead pharmacies throughout the greater Orlando area. His wife, Margaret, also worked in the medical field at a company called Medware. Nearing retirement, Margaret loved the newfound time she was able to spend with her husband and sons. For most who knew the family, all indicators pointed towards a happy, healthy home. As brothers often do, Cody and Grant developed an inseparable bond. The two of them did everything together, including enrolling in a nursing anesthesia program and following along in the family footsteps to begin work in the medical field. But yeah, uh, we were close. I mean, I mean, like bonded, you know. Uh, I don't really know how else to really say it. it. Was a lot of people thought that it was weird because we did everything together and because we were so close. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, yeah, a lot of people understand the bond of brothers. I mean, yeah, the true bond if you're close to your And I mean, during like this whole time, I mean, kind of like with just a few examples I've given you, he was he'd take care of everything. For Always me. there for you. Yeah. Always there to support you. Always there. Together, the brothers seemed to thrive off one another. Both men became RNs in the anesthesia field, although they eventually ended up working in different facilities. Grant was employed at Florida Hospital South in Orlando, while Cody went to work for the Orlando Regional Medical Center. Cody excelled in the profession, often arriving early to start most days by checking in with physicians and doctors alike, along with his patients. But Grant's journey wasn't so seamless or successful. In June of 2018, staff at the Florida Hospital South noticed that eight containers of propofol were mysteriously emptied during one of Grant's shifts. 
Propofol is described as being used in order to help patients relax before and during preparation for general anesthesia, typically ahead of surgery or other critical care medical procedures. When questioned about his use of the drug, Grant told supervisors that he, quote, administered the drug to patients who were not being adequately relaxed, though no physicians had ordered the use of additional propofol. It was concerning as the vials were found in the rooms of two patients Grant had been overseeing. According to a police report, when confronted with the issue, Grant became suicidal, leading to police intervention. The report stated that officials at the hospital planned to press charges against Grant and that he was arrested on site and removed from the medical facility. This incident also led to him being removed from the anesthesia program that he was in. This was information Grant informed Detectives Anderson and Multari about throughout the course of his interrogation. Well, I, had, I was accused of Grant theft for the third degree back in June of 2018. Um, that, like went on for six months and during that time I obviously wasn't allowed to work because right. of it. Um, and then... Where was that at? Florida Hospital South, the main one down in Orlando. General Orange Avenue? Uh... Oh, Rollins? Rollins, that's where it is. Okay. Rollins. Okay. Um, so when that happened obviously I was dismissed from that job and then I couldn't get another job because now you have a, an outstanding felony charge on your name. Sure. Um, so then I got the attorney. It, it all went through and then finally in December uh -huh. They posted on the Orange County Clerk Courts or whatever website where your where your file is that there was no evidence ever ever presented. All the charges were dropped, mm -hmm. and now I'm just in the process of expunging that from my records. Grant had seemingly lost it all due to a lapse in professional judgment, and after losing his job and everything he was working towards professionally, his mental health began spiraling out of control as well. With no job and no school to attend, Grant began spending most of his free time on the internet and eventually his career aspirations evolved. Soon, he had developed high hopes of utilizing the Twitch live streaming platform to stream himself playing games to become, in his words, a wealthy internet sensation. And, and actually, yeah, during the time that I, was, um, that I wasn't working as a nurse, I tried to do the whole Twitch streaming thing. What is that? Um, I'm, I'm sorry, you have to explain a lot of this to us? With, uh, with Twitch, it's you got your mic and then you have your face cam and then you, basically people are just watching you play whatever game you're going to say that you're playing. Okay. And then, you know, they can donate, they can subscribe to you, which then you get like a monthly payment. Um, Did or you have anybody doing that for you? I had, I had like a, I think I was up to like 30-something subscribers. And what would, what would you charge them on? Uh, to, to with, with subscriptions, there's four tiers of it. Uh, tier one is just $5. So right when you see that you, oh, blank, subscribe to you, you get $5. Uh, monthly or just total? Actually, it's every, Twitch pays you every 45 days because you're like an independent, mm -hmm. self-employed or something. No, but like same with, with their account. Though, they subscribe to you. Would it be for a 30-day period? Or yes, or? yes. So every 30 days, they owe you another 5 bucks. If they resubscribe. Right, right. Yeah. So then there was that. Uh, tier 2 was like $10. Tier 3 was 15 Then if somebody tier 4, it was 24 I think. And what does that get you for? All of, all of the higher tiers do is they give you like more emotes like little things you can put in chat so that when you're playing, everybody who's in your room can chat about, you know, what you're doing or, you know, anything random. For those of you unfamiliar with Twitch, the popular website hosts thousands of online gamers eager to stream their gameplay and connect with an audience of fans. Over the years, the system has found itself oversaturated with gamers, all trying to rise to the top. However, some of these streamers, such as Ninja or Tim the Tatman, are said to make upwards of six figures monthly alone just from streaming. 
This doesn't include the endorsement deals or sponsorships some of the more popular streamers secure if they draw large crowds of fans to their feed. And though Grant aspired to one day draw those massive audiences and collect on his predicted internet fame, the people never came, and neither did the money. And then donations are just can range from one cent up to however high. So what, so what were we making off of Twitch a month? Nothing really significant. It was like so you had you just had about thirty people at one time yeah. subscribe to you. So a minimum what? Hundred fifty bucks. Hundred fifty bucks, and then a few <clears throat> donations. Uh, but primarily, I guess just keeping myself busy, right? Doing something. There's a lot of money in this. Now, are these are these, are these adults doing this or kids? They're they're in their early twenties. Okay. The there's thousands and thousands of streamers uh, who do that on Twitch, but there's maybe like five that make six figures, mm-hmm. and then like the two most prominent ones are Ninja and Tim the Tatman, and they both play Fortnite. Uh, like Ninja, I think makes. 300 grand a month from just 300 grand? Yeah. Even though this jobless 29-year-old man was still living at home, his parents' and brothers' love for him never faltered. In fact, both Cody and Grant had bonded over their love of anime. So the two planned a trip to Japan in December of 2018 and invited along a mutual friend of theirs from high school. We actually just went to uh, me and my brother and one of my friends, or I guess friends from high school, we went to Japan mm-hmm. in from December 1st to December 15th. Oh, wow. So we went, because, I mean, and it was anime that kind of inspired us to want to go Was that your first there. time going? Yeah. First time, actually. Who went? You and your brother who? Our friend Jericho. Jericho. He, uh, he's been, uh, he was originally a friend of my brother's back in high school, and then we all have kind of stayed close. How expensive was that trip? Um, I mean, God, plane tickets alone were like 1400 bucks, and then I'd say it was probably about, Ten grand total for like all the stays and for each one of you. Yeah. According to Grant, his brother had offered to pay for the expenses of his entire trip, allowing them both to spend time together and explore another country. But what no one at the time knew is that Grant had been harboring secrets—secrets secrets that would ultimately begin to tear apart the Amato family. Grant began his adventure into online streaming, he first needed to invest in the proper equipment to build a channel that could eventually appeal to a massive audience. Between the cost of hiring graphic designers, PC upgrades, and the cost of all of the games alone, Grant's initial investment quickly turned into a deep, bottomless money pit. Margaret and Chad Amato began noticing repeated large-sum deductions coming from their personal bank accounts. Grant was confronted about the missing money, but he told them not to worry as it was being used for his Twitch stream and that the money would eventually be paid back in full once his channel took off. But the more money that disappeared from their accounts, the deeper they dove in investigating what Grant was actually spending it on. An informal investigation that ultimately brought them to a website called My Free Cams. After having a look at the site, it was quickly evident to Grant's parents that the charges in no way were related to his online gaming endeavor. The homepage of the site boasts photos of literally thousands of nude women who are currently online and eager to chat with paying members. Again, Margaret and Chad confronted Grant on the issue, which he owned up to. He said he met a woman from Bulgaria whose online cam name was Sylvie. He told his parents that he was in love with Sylvie and that the money he was spending was to buy her lavish gifts and to make her think he was a rich, wealthy businessman from the United States. When all was said and done, 
Grant had stolen nearly $150,000 from his father, which included $65,000 in equity from their home and another $50,000 from his brother Cody. It was the ultimate betrayal of a son and brother, someone whom both Chad and Cody would have done anything for had he just asked. But the lying and stealing didn't stop there. While on the trip to Japan, Grant and Cody's friend Jericho had an issue with his Discover credit card. While the trio had been out to dinner, Jericho attempted to pay for his meal, but his card was declined. I was out to dinner and I went to pay for the dinner with the Discover card and it had been frozen. Um, so I contacted my father since it's like a family account and he sent me a screenshot of like three, uh, three uh, charges on the Discover. Um, one went through and then the other two were denied, but they were for uh, MyFree CAM tokens. MyFree CAM tokens allow members to contribute monetarily to any of the models on the site that they choose. They're often used to purchase material things for the women or to fulfill personal requests that they make to longtime viewers. Jericho's account summary showed that over $600 had been used to purchase these tokens on MyFree CAMs. Upon first discovery, Jericho believed his card had been compromised through fraudulent means and could never have imagined that his close friend would steal from him. As his relationships with family began quickly deteriorating, Margaret, Chad, and Cody offered Grant an opportunity to right his wrongs. The family felt that Grant was addicted to this pornographic type of relationship and wanted to get him help. According to Jason, Grant agreed to go to a rehab facility on December 23rd in 2018 roughly a week after he had returned home from Japan. Margaret continued updating Jason on Grant's status once he entered the rehabilitative program for pornography addiction. He voluntarily entered the 60-day treatment program at the request of his father Chad, but would ultimately leave early on January 4th, just about a week and a half later. Upon arriving back at the family home, Grant was given a stern ultimatum. I guess I would call it uh, like an ultimatum. Uh, some options that were uh, given to Grant to choose between uh, after leaving the facility. And um, based off of some of his choices, there were uh, specific rules and regulations that uh, my father had laid out for him. All right, so uh, the first thing that was covered was living arrangements. You know, does he want to live at home? move out on his own, go to the military. Um, looks like my father pre-wrote this and, uh, and then updated it with a different color pen, I'm assuming with a discussion with Grant. So there are some markings and highlightations of things that were discussed and chosen. It looks like Grant um, chose to live at home uh, he understood that the family would not cover or pay any current remaining future debts, etc. Um, uh, goes on to say that uh, you know he, some rules are no post midnight internet use, um, no more all nighters online, uh, limited TV, install a new AT and T modem. Um, for logging, wireless, and hard traffic use. It says that he terminated his current phone um, and set him up with a new phone 
that I guess didn't have data or the ability to go on the internet. Uh, some responsibilities where he had to get a job. Um, he had uh, some debts that he had to take care of. Um, no savings. He owed the family some money. Owed the family an apology. Um, it's very detailed. On January 16th, Jason phoned his mother just to double check on how things were going post-treatment for Grant. Margaret told her son that things were okay and that Grant was actively looking for jobs. It seemed as if things were positively turning around in the Amato home. But unbeknownst to Chad, Margaret, or Cody, Grant was still sneaking around and finding creative ways to continue messaging Sylvie. All right, Sylvia, look at me. I am, I am outside going to check the mail. And I'm asking you if you can please pretty please send me one of your videos I just I, I love it so much when you just send them to me yeah I, I don't like buying your stuff it makes me feel weird could you please send me one though according to Grant he generally tried to avoid heated conversations with his parents he proclaimed that any time there was tension, he wanted to allow them time to get what they needed to say off their chest in order to think about what to say without escalating the situation further. Detectives Anderson and Maltari asked Grant when him and his parents had last gotten into a confrontation. To their surprise, it was just the evening prior to deputies finding his slain family. When was the last time that you and your dad did have, you know, a heated conversation? Uh, it would be... Thursday? Thursday. Uh, because one of his rules was that I wasn't allowed to talk to the woman anymore that I had been talking to. Um, but I guess you could say behind the scenes, my mom would let me talk to her through her cell phone using Twitter. Um, and, you know, she would tell me, like, look, you got to keep it, you have to keep it just basic because if you say anything or if you entice anything or do anything like that, it might lead her to say something to like my dad or something like that. Because, How was she in touch with him? Because apparently when I was in Cornerstone, my dad told her, because he had like hacked my computer or something like that, and then he found everything. The electronics guy like you and your brother? Except he's more of that like hacking level, like able to do all that stuff. So he had found, you know, um, like just the stuff that was related to her. And then, you know, he like, he like erased my whole entire computer, he put a password on it, so it's like, even when I came back up until Thursday, like, I wasn't able to go onto my own computer to look at anything. Basically, I, he's treating you like a small child. Right, and rightfully so. I mean, spending that amount of money, I was acting childish. I, sure. I can kind of get it. While Grant thought he was being clever, his father ended up finding out about his covert social media use and his ongoing contact with Sylvie, the cam model from Bulgaria. So he had apparently found out and then... Unhappy. Right, and one of the stipulations was that he told me at the dinner was, if you speak to this woman again, you're out of the house. I'm kicking you out. You can pack up your shit and then you're off my property. 
And then because of the way that he used to be, he had told me that basically if that happens, that if I ever step back onto his property, that he would kill me. So, you know, on Thursday, um, um, that all happened, and then I was in the process. I was getting all my stuff together. I was piecemealing it out to the car, and then, uh, you know, I had interview on Friday. So I, I had to get my suit out to my car. I was trying to just get all of my necessities as best as I could from, you know, a lifetime of living inside the house. According to Grant, after packing up his belongings and getting ready to leave the home for good, Cody pulled up to the house. The two briefly talked and Cody told his younger brother not to worry, that he would take care of it all. Grant stated that he drove away from the home, not knowing what would happen from that moment on. But the two seasoned detectives sitting on the other side of the interrogation table weren't buying it. In fact, they pulled out photos of the grisly crime scene to prove it and to see if they could generate some type of reaction from Grant, who until now remained almost entirely emotionally disconnected. that information from you to get you over this hump to to a little peace in your mind. You'll never have peace without saying here. Let this me is you. exactly what happened. And, and I already I already know. I'll be honest with you I already know. This isn't my first rodeo she's been doing we've been doing this what, between the two of us, fifty years? Over fifty years. Married. Over fifty years. I've seen So it what is it you need over. to tell us that we're missing? Step over. I mean, the only thing that I know is just that, I mean, I, I uh, left the house later than what I had said. Um, Did you leave the house with your brother Cody looking like that? Or did you leave the house with your father looking like that? Or your mother? Is that how you left your family? No. Nobody, nobody else went into that house. Who left your family like this? If you were the one that's been depressed, you were the one that owes money, you were the one that got into a confrontation with your father, who did this to your family? If you were trying to defend yourself or something else happened, we need to know now to help you. So tell us what happened, Grant. We're here to listen to you. Grant, you need the truth. We're, we're here to make this right. You've got to tell the truth. It's on the tip of your tongue, my man. I get that. It's Did your tough. father go after you and you try to protect yourself? No, I didn't do any of this. Visibly frustrated, Detective Anderson presents his theory, stating that self-defense couldn't be a factor as his mother presented no threat and that his father wasn't even holding the gun still holstered at his side and that Cody couldn't have been the one to cause all of that destruction and then go on to shoot himself. The detective also tells Grant that he knows exactly how they were killed based on the evidence at the scene, that Grant shot Margaret at her desk before going to shoot Chad and waiting for Cody to come inside the house before he too was also killed. All Grant could do was cover half of his face with his hands and look away from the graphic photos of his murdered family that lay on the table in front of him. After hours of interrogation, 
the detectives allowed Jason to come inside of the room to talk with Grant, and after a loving brotherly embrace, they sit down to talk, and it quickly becomes evident that Jason questions his younger brother's involvement in the death of their parents. Okay, so who could have done this? I don't, so you didn't have any problems or troubles with this woman or the online, you didn't owe them any money? I mean, there's no like loan shark out looking for you or, don't see how things aren't adding up. I just, I'm really confused, Grant. I don't understand. How did you get money to pay for a hotel? I still had a few hundred dollars on my debit card, and then Cody uh, gave me his debit card. Okay. And... I want to believe you, Grant, but you're the last person that I could put in that house. And I know what happened over the last six months. I can understand the troubles that you've gone through, but it's hard for me to think that you would break to this point. Mm-hmm. But I don't... I, who else can I blame? Who? How are we going to find out who did this? I don't know. In an attempt to get Grant to talk, Jason laid out everything that would need to be done and handled after their family's brutal murder, as well as mentioning just how severe and illegal Grant's actions were just prior to their parents' mysterious deaths. So what are your intentions? Do you understand what we have to do now? If you're not the person that did it, we have months of stuff that we have to take care of from our dead parents. Months. Months. You know how much stuff is in that house? We have to go through it all. I have to call people in California to let them know that Margaret Amato is not alive anymore. I gotta call at 3 o'clock in the morning because Cody's 30 years old and has perfectly good organs to donate. And I can't, I can't call that shot. He's not an organ donor. I had to say no. So that means there's someone out there that could have used his organs, but we weren't prepared for this. I love you more than anything in this world, just like I loved Cody, Grant, and Dad. I know Dad was an asshole. I know Cody was an asshole. But they were our family, and they would have never done anything to hurt us. Mm-hmm. The shit you did... You could have been in jail. You would have been in jail for years. Jason also brings up the possibility that the FBI may be getting involved because of the money that was moved around. After all, $200,000 is a lot of money for a pharmacist to just, quote, gift to his son. But just as he begins to get heated, Jason stops mid-sentence before telling Grant how he really feels in regards to the entirety of the situation at hand. I probably will have resentment for the rest of my life, whether you did it or you didn't do it, but I need closure. I need to know what happened to my mother, my father, and my brother Cody. Because I wasn't there to fucking help. And that hurts me. 
that hurts me a lot, man. I may not have been able to stop you. You probably may have hurt me too. But at least I would have known what happened. Grant could only respond to his brother's emotional outcry by saying that he himself couldn't understand what happened inside of the home. After all, the guns Grant had once showcased on his Facebook page were all sold off when he was spending lavishly on Sylvie. How could it possibly have been him? But who else could it have been? The answer to that question was pretty obvious, and as Jason said his goodbye to Grant, he left his brother sitting there with one last thought and a hug to say goodbye. I don't think you have the right to make that decision. You already made the decision on whether or not they can live or not. That's not your job. All right, I'm ready. I do love you, though. Just remember that. Just like Mom, Cody, and Dad loved you. Nobody loved you any more or any less. <laughs> I'm going to pray for you, brother. Because I can't pray for Mom, Dad, and Cody anymore. In a shocking twist of events, the detectives let Grant go. Though he had every motive in the world to have killed his family, police didn't believe they had enough physical evidence to prove he was the person who pulled the trigger. The investigators had cause for concern, but their hands were ultimately tied. Monday, January 28, 2019, an arrest warrant was issued for Grant Tiernan Amato, charging him with the first-degree murders of his brother Cody and his parents Chad and Margaret. At roughly 1 a.m. the following day, he was taken into custody without incident, according to the Seminole County Sheriff's Facebook page. The affidavit of arrest revealed that Grant's brother Cody had previously confided in his girlfriend that he believed that Grant would, quote, kill everybody because his desire for Sylvie had devolved into a delusional addiction. Grant stood before a judge and pled not guilty to three first-degree murder charges, with the judge ultimately denying his bond. But that wasn't going to stop the accused man from attempting to get his bond reinstated. For Grant, he believed he was innocent and was under the assumption there were people out there who supported him and believed him. During a hearing on March 27th, Grant stood before a judge with his defense team, asking for a reversal on the bond denial. Jason was called in to testify, 
where he told the court that he did not believe his brother's claims. Again, the judge had no choice but to deny bond, though it would later be set in April at the incredibly high level of $750,000, leaving Amato a slim chance at a pretrial release. Less than two months later, Grant was back in the headlines. In an email dated May 11th, Grant Amato had contacted New York video journalist Colin Archdeacon. The accused killer was hoping to find someone, particularly a millionaire, who would post his bond and allow him to live as the free and innocent man he claimed to be. Grant called his high bond amount, quote, a blessing, and took a step further to place the blame of his situation squarely on his brother Jason for, quote, not believing in me, communicating with me, or helping me. In regards to the millionaire he was seeking to bail him out, Grant told Colin Archdeacon, quote, If you happen to know any who would like to post my bond, I'd be eternally grateful, and I'd give you exclusive rights to my story. No said millionaires came forward to help. Grant's trial was slated for July, just six months after the brutal murders had occurred. Jury selection finalized on July 22nd, with opening statements beginning the very next day. While many aspects of the trial relied solely upon circumstantial evidence, it was overwhelming. Detectives who led the case discussed their conversations with Grant's aunt, Donna, who at one point had taken him in a little over a month before the killings had occurred. According to the conversations with Donna, she told them that on or around December 19th, Grant showed up at their home after an argument with his parents. She described Grant as looking skinny and appearing to be lost, sleeping during the day and staying up all night. During his brief stay with his aunt, she began noticing charges on her credit card account and had found out that her nephew stole her card and was utilizing it. No mention was made about what the charges were, but we can surmise that it was in regards to contacting Sylvie. Donna had made mention of the theft to Chad and Margaret. The family urged her not to press charges, with Cody going as far as telling his aunt that he himself would reimburse the charges Grant had made. A brother and family willing to do anything to protect one of their own, even when he had made costly mistakes, some of which were definitely deserving of jail time. It makes you wonder, would Grant going to jail for fraud charges that somehow changed his life and made him walk a straighter and narrower path? But for Donna, she decided against pressing charges, but was unable to continue to house Grant. Chad had called Donna and broke down. She claimed it was the first time in the entirety of their relationship that she heard him cry. Chad told Donna that he had to remortgage their home to cover the $150,000 that had been taken from he and Margaret, but he also told Donna, quote, It's okay. I'll do it for Grant. I don't want him going to jail. The one piece of physical evidence that the prosecution was missing was the murder weapon. What we know is that all three victims were shot, and all of the weapons found in the home were cleared forensically and weren't involved in the commission of the crime itself. Grant didn't have any firearms, but detectives eventually formed a pretty good idea of where he might have gotten one. Remember Grant and Cody's friend Jericho? A few years prior, he sold an Israeli-manufactured 9mm handgun to a friend within their group. The friend was Blake Turpin. Blake went on the stand to testify at the trial what had happened roughly a month prior to the massacre within the Amato household when he was spending time with Jericho, Cody, and Grant. We had gone out to a uh, Japanese restaurant um, and uh, on the way back, uh, Jericho and uh, Grant both had indicated they needed to use the restroom. Um, Jericho 
needed to do something a little more substantial, so I asked him to use the hallway bathroom. Um, Grant, I told him he could go on back to my room and use the restroom. According to Blake's testimony, Grant was in his bathroom for no more than 10 minutes while he remained out in the living room playing a video game with Cody. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary, at first. At the end of May, I stopped a full-time position and was taking a little sabbatical, doing contract work. Um, a couple weeks in, I got antsy and started doing some spring cleaning. Um, I went into the closet and was getting rid of some older stuff. And uh, when I picked up the gun boxes, I noticed that one was significantly, significantly lighter than it should be. Um, I opened it up and noticed the firearm and one of the two magazines it came with were missing. After noticing the handgun was missing, Blake checked the range bag hidden away in his closet that he typically kept stocked with exactly 100 rounds of 9mm ammunition. But he found that whoever had taken the gun had also gone through the bag. I noticed the basket, um, like I said, when I, you buy range ammo, it tends to you know, do bulk. So usually I buy a thousand rounds and they come in little sealed bags. Um, one of those bags had been kind of picked open um, and I went through and double checked and there were 94 out of the 100 rounds still in the bag. Um, I checked the whole closet, moved the shelf under it, didn't see anything lying on the floor. Because Blake's realization occurred after the Amato family had been killed, he began to notice a pattern. He knew that Grant was familiar with the missing firearm. After all, he had been alone in the room for nearly 10 minutes, and after Grant was arrested, he learned that his supposed friend was a thief. But one of the most crucial pieces of evidence presented in the courtroom was a piece of paper with a handwritten note scribbled onto it that was found in Grant's car after the murders. It read, Grant, I'll take care of all your problems. I just need you back. I can't live without you, brother. I said I'd take care of all your problems at the house, and I have. No one will bother you again regarding this. Please, just come home. I can't do this again. If you think I'm part of the problem here, then I've truly lost you, and I can't take that loss after everything. Grant acknowledged that he himself had written the letter, but claimed he was just jotting down the last conversation he had with his brother Cody, the same Cody who would have done nearly anything for his younger brother. But between all the lying and stealing, their relationship had been deteriorating unbeknownst to Grant. On the evening of the murders, Cody had been with his girlfriend before receiving a text message to come to the house. When his girlfriend asked why he had to leave, he told her it was, quote, stupid family bullshit before departing. With everything that had been presented to the jury, they were tasked with trying to determine whether or not Grant was in fact the one who had killed his family. On July 31st, just eight days after the trial began, the jury reached a verdict. If you could please stand, Mr. Amato. In the Circuit Court of the 18th Judicial Circuit in and for Seminole County, Florida, State of Florida versus Grant Amato, case number 1933CFA. Verdict, count one, Margaret Amato. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of first degree premeditated murder. Verdict, count two, Chad Amato. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of first degree premeditated murder. Verdict, count three, Cody Amato. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of first-degree premeditated murder. Jason, along with other members from the Amato family, sat in the gallery. Many were visibly upset, wiping away tears and holding their pain in from causing a disruption in the courtroom. But Jason just sat and stared straight ahead, likely trying to wrap his head around the fact 
that his younger brother had just been found guilty on three counts of first-degree murder, the murders of their parents. Grant's friend Jericho sat staring straight ahead in disbelief as well. Because this horrific crime had occurred in Florida, a notorious death row state, Grant's trial was considered a death penalty case, and after being found guilty on those three counts of first-degree premeditated murder, his trial entered the penalty phase. On August 12, 2019, Grant Tiernan Omato found out what his punishment would ultimately be. Judge Jessica Rexiedler was the one to present his final penalty to the courtroom, based on the jury's recommendation. Based upon uh, this case, 2019 CF 337 CFA, the state of Florida versus Grant Amato, you've been found guilty of three counts for killing both your mother, your father, and your brother, Margaret Amato, Chad Amato, and Cody Amato. At this point, you've been found guilty by a jury of your peers who have now indicated that you are not to be sentenced to the death penalty. Based upon those circumstances, the court is limited to one finding and one sentence for you. As to each count, the court would adjudicate you guilty. I would sentence you to life imprisonment without any possibility of parole as to each count. I further would indicate that you are to be released to the Department of Corrections as soon as feasibly possible. And otherwise, sir, just God have mercy on your soul. Nothing further at this point. Even though a jury of Grant's peers found the graciousness in their hearts to preserve his life, he couldn't find the same compassion within himself to save his brother Cody or his parents Chad and Margaret Amato from the uncontrollable greed that ultimately drove him to kill. His story is a bizarre one, a hybrid case of sorts. A tale of addiction, misguided love, internet pornography, theft, and ultimately violence gone unchecked that may well have been preventable. But it's like Robert Palmer sang in the 1980s, when your throat is tight and you can't breathe, another kiss is all you need. You might as well face it, you're addicted to love. I'm Lars, and unlike every other suburban white man, I have a podcast. It's called Rusty Hinges, and it has inexplicably made it to season two. In season one, we talked murder, mayhem, mystery, and hoaxes. I think we'll stick with this winning combination. Look for a Rusty Hinges episode on the murders of Isidore Fink and Letitia Turow, two famous locked room mysteries. Get lost in the woods with the good people of Bennington, Vermont. And join me as we follow the path of a man we all briefly believe lives the American dream of launching his kid into the sky in a balloon. You can find Rusty Hinges wherever you find great podcasts. Well, you can also find it where you find terrible podcasts. 
That's Rusty Hinges. It's a podcast. Go listen. <laughs>